A warm welcome to Ask Agra, Family History Question Time, a series of podcasts recorded in a panel discussion format featuring key professional genealogists from the Association of Genealogists and Researchers in Archives in England and Wales, who are joined by special guests from the world of family history research. Our panel today will focus on the area of DNA testing and the use of DNA test results in conjunction with genealogical research. What type of tests are available and what do our experts recommend? Not everyone can follow the science, but our experts hope to make the topic accessible to all. Our moderator today is AGRA member Sharon Grant of Grantshire Genealogy. Sharon's practice is based in London and she has over 30 years experience of research across the British Isles, backed up with a history degree from Goldsmiths College London. Sharon is joined by one of the preeminent voices in the field of DNA interpretation and genetics in conjunction with genealogical research, Dr. Jeff Swinfield. Jeff has been addicted to genealogy since 1972. He has a PhD in genetics from Nottingham University and has applied genealogical techniques and sources to the study of families at risk from genetic diseases. Jeff advocates the application of DNA testing to family history studies. They go hand in hand. He is a licentiate of the Institute of Heraldic and Genealogical Studies and a fellow of the Society of Genealogists. Living in London, he is past chair of the Board of Assessors of AGRA and has taught many genealogical and family history courses. He was a professional genealogist for nearly 40 years, being research director of two of the largest research companies. Since 1999, he had his own company, Jeff Swinfield Genealogical Services, but he now says that he is firmly in retirement. And with that retirement, he has had time to revisit the research, which he has conducted into his own family over the past four decades. He runs the Swinfield One Name Study, in which DNA testing has proved particularly illuminating. With Jeff are Vicky Manners, who is an agro-associate, a genealogist, and an archivist with over 15 years' experience, which she has gained through working at a county archive, a national museum, and through her own private practice. Her specialisms include genetic DNA research, research within the Bedfordshire area, and house histories. She is also a qualified lecturer, working part-time for the Open University, and runs a number of local genealogy and family history courses. And finally, but certainly not least, Introducing AGRA member Madeline Dickens of Past Generations from East Sussex. Madeline qualified as a genealogist with the Institute of Heraldic and Genealogical Studies. She brings an international dimension to our subject, speaking both French and German and able to work on international research. She has built a network of genealogists in a number of other countries, including a genetic specialist in the United States. And she has worked with the genetic specialist Dr Nadia Hanna on a number of occasions. Welcome to you all. Our moderator, Sharon Grant, has DNA on her mind. Welcome to this AGRA podcast on uh, DNA. We're delighted to have a panel of experts with us that are going to try and discuss and answer questions around what can be a complex subject. I have a series of questions which I'm going to ask the panel members to respond to in turn. And I'm going to start with the first one. This is around DNA and what it is and how it can help with family history research. We'd also like a summary of what the tests are available and how they work. Um, so, Jeff, I'm going to ask you to kick off on this. Okay. Well, DNA is a very complex subject. So, I'm going to tell you to start with what DNA is and how it can help you with your research. DNA is the building block of life on Earth. Its full name is deoxyribonucleic acid. It's a very clever chemical 
which provides all plants and animals with the blueprint for their existence. It tells each type of organism how to manufacture the chemicals essential for it to grow and thrive and eventually pass itself onto the next and subsequent generations. Since the beginning of life on Earth, DNA has changed and evolved, creating all the different species that we have today. DNA is packaged into what are called chromosomes, which are found within the nucleus of our cells. Each human has 46 chromosomes, which comes in 23 pairs, because one of each of those pairs was inherited from each of its parents. Which chromosomes were donated to us by each parent is a matter of chance. We are very unlikely to have inherited exactly 25% of our DNA from each of our grandparents. As an extreme, we may have inherited no DNA from one of our four grandparents. One pair of the chromosomes are the sex-determining chromosomes. Women have two X chromosomes, one in coming from each of her parents. Males received one X chromosome from their mother and a much smaller Y chromosome, which came from their own father and previously their grandfather and so on. We must also inherit another type of DNA that is found in bodies called mitochondria. Those are found in our cells, but outside of the nucleus. Mitochondria are the powerhouse of the body producing its energy. At about 25,000 sites along the length of the chromosomes, the cell can read the DNA code and find instructions to produce a specific protein, which is essential for life. These messages are called the genes. As DNA is passed on through the generations, mistakes happen in copying the code. These changes in the sequence are called mutations and can be very significant to the individual who has them if the error is within a gene. Mutations in the code outside the genes will not affect the life of the person. That variation can also be determined using DNA testing. Tests can determine what DNA we share with our cousins and where it came from in our family trees using the techniques of genetic genealogy. It can help us to discover who our ancestors were and what close living relatives we may now have. The type of test that a person needs to take depends on what you are trying to prove or disprove and who else is available to provide another sample for comparison. There are three types of tests used in genealogy. Mitochondrial DNA, as we have heard, is inherited through the female line only from your mother's mother's mother, etc. It is passed to all her children, both boys and girls, it changes very slowly through history and thus is not particularly useful in the genealogical time period of the past 700 years. It can be very interesting if your mitochondrial DNA proves to be from an unexpected area of the world. It was recently used to assist with the identification of the bones of the body found in the Leicester car park and proving that he was Richard III. It is necessary to compare the testes sample against the mitochondrial DNA of the suspected relative who is known to be part of a proven ancestral line. This full test is only available from a company called Family Tree DNA. Y DNA is inherited through the male line only from father's father's father, etc. Consequently, the test can only be taken by men. A man can only pass his Y DNA to his sons and not to his daughters. The genealogical version of the test is not the same as that used in paternity testing. This type of test can tell us exactly where your ancient paternal ancestor may have lived in the world and when his type of Y-DNA evolved. More usefully, in genealogy, it can tell us if two men can or cannot be closely related within the past seven centuries since hereditary surnames were passed from father to son. The test can be applied in research into illegitimate adopted boys who are trying to identify their real father 
Discovering non-paternity events in a family tree where the father recorded in documents was not the genetic father, proving the accuracy or not of a paternal line, or in a one surname study. Again, this Y-DNA test is only available from the company called Family Tree DNA. The most important type of DNA test now is that for autosomal DNA. It is inherited to some degree through each of our recent ancestral lines and may be passed to our cousins, whether they be second, third or fourth cousins. Because of the way in which chromosomes are inherited, and the DNA from each ancestor is diluted out through the generations, this type of DNA test is only really useful research in the last five or six generations of a family tree. This test is offered by the five major companies, Ancestry DNA, 23andMe, MyHeritage, Family Street DNA, and Living DNA. Their databases vary from 18 million at Ancestry to just over 1 million samples at Family Tree DNA. Each company has different ways of analyzing the results and tools for the genealogist. The test that we take needs to be compared to those of others who are in a large database and is always best used in conjunction with conventional paper or online genealogy and family history research. Thank you for that, Jeff. That was a good introduction. Can we now move on to what the tests reveal and also explain how people can discover surprising or even unwelcome news that raises ethical issues around DNA research and um, it would be good to know what some of the downsides are. Vicky, can I ask you to sort of lead on that? Thank you, Sharon. I think as Jeff has mentioned, ultimately the test can reveal who your ancestors are. They can confirm or deny genetic research that you have done to date. And that really does need to be used in conjunction with traditional genealogy, which is a good point that Jeff has mentioned earlier. And again, things that testing can help with is things like finding living relatives. So say, for example, I am working with a client at the moment. He's got no siblings. He has also got no cousins, first cousins that he's aware of. So he wants to find all of the descendants of his great grandfather, i.e. any second cousins that he might have, because he's looking for someone to pass his family archive on to. And again, as Jeff mentioned, you know, DNA testing can help with things like finding parents of illegitimate children and also people that are adopted. So when you find someone, if you're tracing someone who's illegitimate, parents of illegitimacy, that can be welcome news. But at the same time, it can be unwelcome news as well. You just might not get the information that you're looking for. And that's something you have to be prepared for. And again, as an example of that, um, I had a client and she asked me to trace her father who had died in the war. One thing that she knew about that was my client knew that she was illegitimate because her father had married her mother. There was a knock on the door and it was the army police to say, I'm sorry, he's an army deserter, he's already married. He was shipped off to Burma, never seen or heard of again. Um, my client's mother tried to track him down and he wrote to her to say, look, I'm really sorry, I really love you. It's all, you know, this is not what I wanted to happen. And the letters stopped. So that was at the end of it. And at the age of 65, this client had no siblings left. So she became curious about her father and wondered whether she had any siblings. So she went down the route of DNA testing and it took a, a year to get a match. So that's another thing to consider. You don't necessarily get your matches overnight. You get your matches as and when someone does the DNA data. But the surprise was that the person who got in touch proved to be a half brother 
But actually, it was for a third marriage, and the gentleman concerned, i.e. her father, had actually married three women at the same time, and also had had lots of children. So again, the tragedy of this was a little while later, one of the siblings of the first family got in contact. And then literally within, I would say about three or four weeks, my client had gone from having no siblings to nine siblings, you know, and she found that very, very overwhelming. And in tandem with that, to find that the story of, you know, her relationship between her mother and father wasn't one of a tragic love story. Actually, he was a cad and he was a multiple bigamist. So she found that quite difficult to deal with. And then there's also the ethical issue of what does she tell her children? Does she tell her children? Does she tell her children they've got loads of cousins? Does she tell her children they've got loads of aunts and uncles? So uh, I'm sure Madeline and Jeff, Madeline, you must have lots of similar examples of ethical issues that have come across doing research. Yes, thanks, Vicky. It's a really interesting case, actually, because I had a a case recently where a woman found out at 70 that her father wasn't her father. In fact, um, her mother had had an affair in the war and this woman had been searching desperately for seven years. She'd been literally going to pubs he went to. She'd been putting out leaflets in the street, etc. Lots of detail, which I I haven't got time to go into now, obviously. To cut a very long story short, the only thing we knew that was he was called Jack. He was in the Navy. He was probably on the minesweepers based at Sheerness. That was all we knew. We found him through a combination of DNA and a lot of hard genealogical research slog. She was obviously absolutely over the moon about this. From then, she now has family in South Africa, Australia, in the north of England. A bit like the example you talked about, because she's being bombarded from all sides. And still two members of the family haven't accepted the information at all. One of them was in quite a serious state of health and he was devastated by the news that his father had had an affair and he betrayed his mother. I mean, I think this really highlights, it's very, very important to remember with DNA research, there's always two sides to every story. And for one person who's going to be thrilled with the results, there'll be other people who won't necessarily be quite so thrilled. And I've dealt with a few of these cases where people discovered either new or discovered late in life that they were legitimate. And it's very rarely been sailing. And I think enormous amount of, of thought and care has to go into any contacting that happens. As it happens in the case I've just described, it had a very happy ending, except she's feeling overwhelmed and she's almost not responding to emails now because she's got things coming from all directions. So I think that is certainly, I think the whole area of contacting is is very important to think about in ethical terms. Also, the family who we contacted for this woman, their first reaction was, how did you get all this information? Why are you rummaging around in our family history, basically? And I had to write some very, very long emails to pacify them and to explain, you know, that information is publicly available, but we always try to use it very respectfully. But that could have gone very, very badly wrong. And they might have just said, well, look, we we hate what you're doing. We don't agree with it. We've never done it ourselves and we don't see why anyone else should do it. And I think that is another consideration to bear in mind. I think anyone who's undertaking DNA research really has to think very, very carefully about it. And Jeff, I don't know if you have any more thoughts about that. I think you both covered the ethical issues very well indeed. I know you really need to think about what you're going to discover, what it might tell the people you're testing for and uh, whose advice you're giving them. It's a difficult thing and there's so many complex issues in ethical research. Absolutely. Um, I think people, 
need to go in with their eyes open, don't they? And Madeline has uh, mentioned some people are thrilled at the contact, but people on the other side might not necessarily welcome the news. So uh, some good examples there. Okay, let's go on to the next question. I think, Jeff, you've made reference to this in the introduction, but could you explain a little more about how many generations back DNA is useful in identifying the father of an illegitimate child? Because this is one of the major uh, uses it is put to, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends what you're trying to discover. As I said before, there are two tests that you can certainly use when looking for illegitimacy. Obviously, the Y DNA test, if you're looking for the identity of a father, grandfather, great-grandfather, whatever it may be, you need to have access to a Y-DNA test, and that can only be taken by males, obviously. But what you really need to do in the past is to find a potential candidate for that male ancestor and see whether he has any living male descendants, because you've got to test one Y-DNA chromosome against another. So it can be anywhere back five, six hundred years, if you were fortunate enough to find such a genealogy, to test people who are descended from that to see if their Y-DNA matches. Perhaps more sensibly, if it's within the last few generations, then you could set about doing an autosomal test, because that can, of course, that type of DNA can pass through male and female lines. So you wouldn't have to have two men to test against each other. And by looking at what percentage of DNA they share in common, and maybe what segments they share in common, you may be able to prove that a particular person could have been the ancestor of the illegitimate child, whether it be a boy or a girl. So there are all sorts of things that you can do, but you do need to look at a number of cousins if you're using autosomal testing to try and find the people who prove that relationship. I mean, I, I think I was going to mention the fact that I do particularly not have the Swinfield Y chromosome. So I am the result of a non-paternity event in the Nidjitipasi some generations ago. I mean, having done DNA testing for many years, I suddenly bit the bullet and thought I will test myself against uh, other Swinfield males. Much to my chagrin, I discovered that I had a type of DNA, my Y DNA, which was not the same as all the other Swinfield men. So then I looked back at my genealogy and thought, where does my Y-DNA therefore come from? And I looked at my great-great-grandfather and surprisingly enough discovered that he was not the father of any of his nine children that he had by his wife. That was backed up by a newspaper report from the overseers of the poor. And clearly he was not living in most cases uh, with his wife throughout the 1830s and 1840s. Uh, he had gone off to Nottinghamshire from Leicestershire and was living with someone else and had any illegitimate children by her. And I discovered eventually by other testing that my ancestor, my great-great-grandfather, was in fact Thomas Brown, the man who was lodging with Mrs Swinfield in that 20-year <laughs> period and was fathering all her children. And I've backed that up by looking at autosomal DNA and proved that all the living descendants have the same autosomal DNA as me and not the same as any other Swinfields that they should be related to, uh, which is a bit of a sadness, really, after 40 years of research to discover that doing my one-name Swinfield study, I don't actually belong to it. 
genetically, but of course I do genealogically. And, and the big thought then is, well, which tree should I be tracing or do I trace both? And uh, how do I feel about my ancestors? Which one really is the one I should care about? I actually care, I suspect more about Thomas Swinfield than Thomas Brown, who is actually my genetic ancestor because of all the work I've done on it. But interestingly, my best matches, I have a very rare wide DNA chromosome, and the best match I have is to a, a man called Brown who can trace his ancestry back to 1710 in Staten Island, New York, and still lives in America. And I'm sure he must be a cousin of mine from 400 years ago. So yes, you can use both Y-DNA and autosomal DNA, but it depends who you have to test against uh, and what the results turn out to be. Thank you, Jeff. That's absolutely fascinating. It does show what can happen. So we're now going to talk about how the results of DNA testing should be shared or how they can be shared. And um, Vicky, I'm going to ask you to lead on this. Thank you, Sharon. Um, well, one way you can share your overall data is to export your data from the company, your DNA data from the company you originally did your test with to another company. And the, the advantage of that is you can expand upon the number of potential matches. So, Jeff, you mentioned earlier on, you know, how Ancestry has several million matches that you can compare with and some of the other companies perhaps are smaller and only have another million matches but actually by sharing your data with one of those other databases that's got a million you're actually increasing the number of matches that you have so that's one way that you can share your data and the other thing is that each of the companies that run the tests do the tests as well as the company that does your original test they all have very good mechanisms for how you can contact your matches. They're all slightly different, but what they allow you to do is to contact people that you have similar DNA matches with. And sometimes you can also share their trees if you want to have a look at that as well. I would say that the significant advantage of that is in contacting those people, you don't actually have to share any of your personal information. You don't actually have to share your name you don't have to share your email address you can actually do that in first instance at least with some level of anonymity and I think that goes back to something you were saying earlier on Madeline when it talks about people that find matches how they then try and contact people how they try and share their data and I just wondered whether there was something on that that you wanted to expand on. Yeah, thanks, Vicky. I mean, obviously, one of the main resources, well, not, not all, actually, all but one testing companies give, is a load of cousin matches. Now, those can be anything from a first cousin to a sixth cousin, basically. So you get a whole long list. It could, there could be hundreds of people potentially on it. Obviously, assuming you want to identify cousins, you may not want to. You start with the first and then work your way through the list. Now, two things to bear in mind are, um, you may be very enthusiastic about contacting this person. They may not be quite so enthusiastic about hearing from you. People do a DNA test for all sorts of reasons. They may have got it as a present that they didn't massively want, but thought they'd do it. So bear in mind always how other people might feel sort of hearing from you. And secondly, and more importantly, that they, um, they may not have a family tree for you to compare with, or they may have an absolutely minimal family tree which, as I discovered in a recent case, is wrong. They even got the birth dates of their parents wrong on the, um, on the family tree. So that is something to bear in mind. Now, either if you're a very enthusiastic researcher, you can build the tree and sort of do the comparison, or you can ask 
a genealogist to build the tree for you, but bear in mind, it is quite a laborious process, particularly as, as I discovered on my ancestry, most of the cousin matches didn't have trees. So that is obviously a really daunting task, which could potentially take a long time to go through. So, um, I mean, definitely that your cousin matches are important, but bear in mind the potential pitfalls and that, but you can have amazing successes as well. You can meet the most wonderful people, you know, who you didn't know you were even related to and long-term you know, relationships can emerge if that's what you want. You can also get photographs, you can get information about a part of the family maybe you never even knew about. The downside of cousin matches can be, as it happened recently to my partner actually, is that um, they discovered they had a first cousin she never knew about. And, and so the implication was someone somewhere was illegitimate. It might have been her, it might have been the other person. That has caused quite a lot of upset. In fact, in the end, both sides have just given up. It was too painful to go there. So do please, please bear in mind the point we've all been making that DNA results are incredibly sensitive things and you need to think about all the implications before sort of launching in and consider replies or contacts with people very, very carefully. I haven't mentioned Facebook quite deliberately because I hate to put the thought of Facebook in people's minds. But a lot of people automatically do say, oh, yeah, we'll see who we can find on Facebook. In fact, I've had various clients who've said, oh, we've got this wonderful person. We're absolutely convinced it's them. We're convinced and we've contacted them. And my heart absolutely sinks because when I look at the details, I realise there is no possible way this person could be related to them. And <laughs> I would almost advise not to use Facebook, to be honest. And I'm not um, a Luddite. I'm on various social media. It's not that issue. I think the trouble is it's so easy to make the wrong contacts on Facebook. You might strike lucky and make the right one. But in my experience, most of the contacts are, that are identified are wrong. Maybe someone of you, uh, Vicky or Jeff, has had some positive experience with Facebook. But um, that would certainly be my experience. Yeah, it's not a media that I would advocate, to be quite honest. Well, it's not come from a reliable source, really. I think you only should contact someone if you definitely have a match that you can take forward. So, Because, again, for all the ethical issues, you could inadvertently really upset or offend someone. Then, actually, there's no basis on that. I mean, the only thing I would say in Facebook's defence as a research tool is that it's a very good way of finding younger people if you're looking for people who you want to discover whether they're related to the person you're looking for, because their parent may not be on Facebook, but the younger person may well be. And, you know, as a, a way of finding living relatives, it's, it's quite a good tool. That's all I would say. I wouldn't contact people through Facebook, but I would use it as a research tool. Yeah, but again, I think all the cautions apply, really. Yeah. You know, it, it's too easy on Facebook to contact people and to assume things. Yeah. And, but perfectly right. I have had other clients who have successfully contacted people through Facebook, but they had a lot of information and they were pretty sure of their ground. I was doing some research once for two sisters who were born two weeks apart by the same man and two different women. <laughs> and by looking on Facebook, we were able to find a photograph of the man and the family resemblance was amazing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. He had one child in, in Scotland and one child in England two weeks apart. Was he a bigamist as well? Well, he was married to one of them and not to the other. You know, so you, you have to yeah. be, look at everywhere you can to try and find genealogical information, if you like. Absolutely. Thank you all for that. You know, contact is a difficult area and, you know, there are all sorts of means and some are far preferable to using social media. 
often the old-fashioned approach of writing a letter sometimes. Okay, let's move on. The next question is about regulations governing DNA tests and data retention policies and how they differ in different countries. Madeleine, would you like to um, kick us off on that one? Thanks, Sharon. Yes, I think a preface to this has to be, um, I mean, I speak languages, I specialise, I tend to specialise in European genealogy, although I get a lot from this country as well, obviously. But um, a lot of people approach me about French and German genealogy in particular. People assume if they don't have a birth location, it would be the same as here, that, you know, it'd be dead easy to find, you know, whichever relatives there are. That isn't the case. If you don't have a birth location, particularly if it's a fairly common surname, then the chances are you won't be able to find your ancestors in the particular country. And that is almost a, a rule of thumb because there is no centralised indexing. There's incredible data protection, particularly in Germany. So often there are other ways of trying to find the information. You can look in this country and see what records you can find in this country, censuses, etc., wills. But often people just put, very frustratingly, put Germany on censuses. They don't actually, or France, they don't actually specify where they're from. Or you can also look at passenger lists. I mean, quite a lot of passenger lists, um, the main passenger lists online are, are intercontinental, obviously. But um, some passenger lists have been transcribed, particularly for Germany to, to the UK. And they can sometimes throw up really important information. Again, if it's a fairly uncommon surname. But basically, if you don't have any of those resources, then DNA testing is, is theoretically, anyway, the only way forward, because that's your only way of, of tracing potential um, you know, relatives and ancestors. The problem there is, of course, that people might be horrified to hear that in France and Germany, DNA testing is illegal. In France, it's been illegal since 1994, and in Germany for a longer period. And this relates, in a way, to very strict data protection, much stricter than here. It also relates to the fact that these countries don't trust ancestry in the other companies. In fact, when I was looking at links about this subject, the term Wild West was used constantly. And I think particularly in France, there is that concern around those issues. Having said all that, there are some positive initiatives. There's something called the Siena Project, for example, in the EU, which is aiming to develop ethical foundations and standards across the board, across European countries. And there's also a really important initiative in Germany, for example, there's initiatives in other countries between Living DNA and one of the largest genealogical computer federations in, in Germany to establish a German database, of DNA database. So these are really positive initiatives. And there was a survey apparently recently in the Figaro in France where 78% of people who responded said, I mean, okay, they were self-selecting, but said they thought DNA testing should be legalised because the ban at the moment is benefiting a legal profession in France. Obviously, people are finding ways around it. I mean, hundreds of thousands of French people are still getting tested despite the ban because they're doing it by friends in other countries, etc. So there are ways around this, but one of the main problems it causes is the size of the database that you, a German or French descendant of French or German people, the size of the database you have to match with. And in fact, I have someone who's going through this process at the moment, so it'd be very, very interesting to see how that works out. And, and in fact, how many testing matches he does get from his German side. So it's quite a complex issue. And in a way, the, the ban is bad news, but obviously there are lots of moves to change that. I think there is more and more recognition about the need 
that loads of people in this country do have ancestry from other countries and ditto vice versa. So um, I think in terms of French and German genealogy, uh, one, one important point to make is I'm really not promoting this company, but they are the company which a lot of European people in European countries use, and that's a company called My Heritage, because they have actually made an effort. They supply sites in different languages, they supply to virtually every country, because I know a lot of people who have French and German genealogy get very frustrated and very, very desperate, really. So if you do want a company that you think will have a bigger database, then certainly look for yourselves and judge for yourself whether you think my heritage would be a company you'd want to use. Thank you, Madeleine. I do think it's a case of, you know, when you're used to research in England and Wales especially, you, you assume that the rules are the same worldwide and they vary differently and they are very restrictive as you say, in certain jurisdictions. Okay, we're now going to move on to the next question. And this is to ask you what your favourite online resource is, firstly. And can you recommend a good blog or journal to follow to keep up to date with the latest news? Jeff, can you start us off on that one, please? Yeah, my favourite DNA blog, if you like, that I refer to frequently, although it's not strictly a DNA blog, is the Lost Cousins website, lostcousins.com. Peter Calver, who runs the organisation, issues a free newsletter to subscribers every seven to ten days. It keeps you up to date with all the news on all sorts of different genealogical topics. He's written over the years uh, many masterclasses, as he calls them, for solving genealogical problems, which can be read on his website by subscribers or non-subscribers. But obviously you need to know it's going to be there. Um, they include an excellent and very clearly written masterclass in DNA. And I would suggest you read it because it is very clear and simple guidelines, advice, techniques, etc., for solving problems through DNA research. It also, most importantly, gives you details of current discounted offers on DNA tests, which are being offered by the main companies in the next period in which you might want to commission a test. So it's a good way of keeping up to date on the news and also not paying full whack for a, a DNA test. Yeah, I think you also wanted to mention a site that you're fond of. Yeah, my go-to favourite site is a site called the International Society of Genetic Genealogy. Uh, they run a Wikistroke website and it is brilliant. One of the reasons why I like it, it's got lots of very useful articles. Lots of them are written by professional researchers it's not biased towards a particular company or testing tool. So there's a lot of objectivity there. But again, it's also a combination of, like I said, articles. It's got short video clips. It shows you references to good books that you can read, courses that you can do. It's a very, very good finding tool. And it's kept up to date as well, which I think is a very positive advantage. OK, thank you for that, Vicky. At this point, I'm just going to explain that our three panellists here are going to compile a list of links connected with DNA. And we'll post that as a PDF alongside this uh, podcast. So you'll be able to um, link through to the sites that have been mentioned and some additional ones as well. So now we're moving on to the next question. What should the benefit of professional research add to the project? Vicky, can you um, start us off on this one, please? Okay, thanks, Sean. Well, probably after listening to everything that we've done so far, you can probably see that actually interpreting DNA results can be very complicated. There are different testing companies. There are different types of tests. 
And then when you actually do the test and you get the results back, they can be very complicated to interpret. You've got to have a really good understanding of the genomical or DNA units of measurement that are used, you know, how they relate to different cousins, different types of cousin relationships to help you try and identify who you should be matched to and who's a relevant match. So one of the key advantages of a professional researcher is, A, they've got the expertise in doing all of that and putting it together. But what they will actually help you do is to work out what exactly you're looking for and then come up with a research plan on how you're actually going to achieve that to keep your research focused. So that's one of the things. And then they'll look at things like, again, they'll give you advice on which companies to test with whether you need to export your data elsewhere. And then part of that will be if you need to actually use any additional tools to interpret your data. So they'll give you plans and advice on what you actually need to do. So probably as an example, I think one of the things that I think, Madeline, you mentioned earlier on is it can be very difficult if you're trying to cousin match and the cousins don't have a tree to match with. So therefore, you come up with these unidentified names and how do you know where you're related and how? So there's a very good tool that you can do to help with that, and it's called a chromosome browser. And there are different sites where you can have a look at that. And what that actually is, it's an image where you can look at your own 23 strands of your DNA, your chromosomes, and you can physically look to see where and how much you compare with other people that you're trying to match with. So it's very good. And it's typically displayed as a graph of 23 stripes, representing your 23 chromosomes and it shows you in colored sections where you share your DNA with other people and how much and then by comparing that you can work out how you're related to someone particularly if you don't have any names or anything to go with or you come up with a really unusual name so if I give an example if you're trying to look for a great-grandparent that is illegitimate You can use a chromosome browser. And if you go through the seven great grandparents that you do know and you've got all the information and you've been able to see where you actually match with them on their chromosomes. And say, for example, a match comes in and it's got segments that are shared on chromosome five and chromosome 12, but none of your other matches have that. You can assume it's a second cousin relationship if you're looking for um, great grandparents forward that he could be the descendant of the great-grandparent that you're looking for because you share DNA with him. You share the right amount of DNA with him, but you only share it with him. You don't share it on any of the other matches. So, And that's just one of many, many tools that a professional researcher can help you with to actually understand and interpret the results. Jeff and Madeline, if you've got anything more that you would like to add to that. No, I mean, accepting the usefulness of the chromosome browser, which is obviously, I mean, it's obviously crucial. But even when you get to the point of having all the analysis, it may still be that person doesn't have a family tree. You know, as, as we stated earlier, in a way, it may be obviously you're related to them, but you don't know any more about the situation, which you may want to know. For me, in all my experience of doing this sort of genealogy, I think the, the, the combination of analysis of DNA results of the raw data behind what we actually receive and the, um, and the genealogical analysis, they're often pretty much inseparable, really. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is something that then has to be done in tandem with the, all the other 
paper-based genealogical tools to then actually work out how that relationship is. And that's crucial. And again, that's where a professional researcher can help. They can help you link in your DNA results with your tree, help you build your tree, expand your tree to see where it all fits in. Jeff, have you got anything you wanted to add to that? I would just say I still think one of the important things that a professional genealogist does is to act as the go-between between the the client, if you like, who's submitted their test and the people who are likely to respond to it. Mm -hmm. I'm still getting contacts from people who find one of my client's tests in a database suddenly because they've just tested themselves and wants to contact that person. And the best way of doing it is through the person who's acting as the intermediary, if you like, which is the professional genealogist who's organising the project. That person may have died by now, the person I've tested honestly and they're still going to be contacting me as the genealogist because my email address is on the, the contact through the various companies who may be hosting that kits so I think that's important you're almost acting as a solicitor if you like to, to deal with the correspondence regarding proving or disproving a particular relationship and I think you're right Jeff that also helps I think with managing for want of a better word some of the ethical issues that we've mentioned that have come up as well so thank you okay thanks very much so that brings our podcast on dna to a conclusion our thanks to all our panelists today to vicky madeleine and jeff we hope listeners will find this interesting and informative if you have any questions related to issues raised in this podcast please email them to askagra at agra.org.uk Please don't send us your brick walls. We will not be able to solve them. And I also need to say that the next podcast in the series will be on land records. So do look out for that. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.